Time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers joining us for the weekly discussion. Michael, good morning. Good morning. Uh, Great to be here. Lots on the agenda today. Where shall we start? Well, I'm not sure how much of a respite it's going to be from the the Russian invasion. But our first story is a story that involves murder and money. Uh, So usually... uh, (laughs) It's not Russian at all. Yeah. That's not Russian at all. Um, And so the background of this uh, is that uh, a a woman who uh, had uh, two sons uh, was murdered back in 2016 by one of the two sons. Obviously not a very good son. No. Um, uh, And uh, the uh, result of that is that the the woman had a a will in an estate of some $860,000. Uh, and her will provided uh, that her estate would be shared amongst her children. And if either of the children had uh, predeceased her, the money would then go to her grandchildren, right? Any children of her children. Yes. Uh, and failing that on to charity. Uh, and in Canada, and I must say, this is one of the things which is, uh, uh, I think, great about the common law. The, the, the common law develops uh, to, I think, uh, come to a conclusion that uh, most uh, sort of reasonable people who think carefully about a subject matter would come to probably on their own. Ideally, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so we have, not surprisingly, in Canada, a legal principle uh, based on the public policy idea that uh, if you commit a crime uh, and cause somebody's death, you're not going to benefit from that. Uh, and that takes several forms. It would include, for example, it would disentitle you to um, uh, life insurance proceeds. You can't take out a life insurance policy on somebody, kill them, and then collect. That's not on. Uh, and also, uh, if you commit a, a criminal act like murder and lead to somebody's death, you are also uh, disentitled to inherit money pursuant to the person's will. Interesting. You know, that's sort of, I think, what most reasonable people would think should be the result, and indeed it is. Yeah. Uh, and so that, in this case, led to an issue about, well, what do we do with the provisions of this person's will? Um, and uh, as is often the case in a will, what happens is that uh, there will be somebody who is the trustee of the estate, whose job it is to pay off the debts of the person who's died and distribute the um, funds uh, in a person's estate to their beneficiaries. Um, and we have a section in BC, Section 86.1 of the Trustee Act, where when a trustee doesn't, isn't sure what they should do in a particular circumstance, they can go to the BC Supreme Court and ask a judge for direction. What do I do here? Um, And the reason that was complicated here is that it's clear that the son who committed murder wasn't entitled to inherit uh, any of the money uh, belonging to his mother. But where does it go? And here are the choices. The the brother, there's another brother who was not involved with the murder. Or what about this? (laughs) 11 days after the murder occurred, a woman with whom the murderous son was romantically involved with gave birth to a baby girl. Hmm. Uh, and so who should get the money? Should it be the brother? Uh, should get twice as much? Should the uh, daughter uh, of the uh, murderer, the granddaughter of the deceased, get the money? Or should it go to charity? Uh, and it was complicated because if you just read the uh, the will uh, of the deceased mother who was murdered, it uses the language that, look, if uh, either of, if my children predecease me, 
then it would go to their children, right? The person's grandchildren. That's not uncommon. But the problem was that the murderer's son was very much alive, in jail, serving a life sentence. Hmm. He wasn't dead. Hmm. And so does that mean that the um, mother's effort to yeah. uh, give money, do we just cross that out? And does that mean that the money left over, that's just really one son left? Uh, or does it mean that it would, uh, neither son would get that amount and it would go to sort of the residue, which would go to charity? Hmm. And so that's what the Supreme Court judge had to decide on that fact pattern. Uh, and in making that decision, uh, the Supreme Court judge uh, listened to and received evidence, uh, actually in the form of affidavits, from people including uh, the executor of the case about what the deceased mother's wishes were, and what was the purpose of her will. And part of the evidence before the uh, judge uh, was that uh, the deceased mother uh, had indicated that her uh, relationship with her sons had eroded. There, there's an understatement, at least with respect to yeah, one of them. Yeah. And that she had considered changing her will to ensure that her grandchildren were provided for. Huh. And as well, she was aware uh, that the murderer's son, uh, his uh, uh, romantic partner, was pregnant huh. when she talked about that. Um, and so when the court's trying to interpret a, a provision in a will like this, one of the fundamental jobs of a court would be to try to ensure that the intent of the testator um, is respected uh, to the extent that that's possible. Again, that would be sort of, I think, a principle, uh, a common law principle that I think most people would probably say, yeah, that's probably what you should do. Yeah, right? You should yeah. do your best to try to respect what would be the the, the wishes of the uh, the deceased. Um, and uh, in that regard, what the court would be trying to look at is, well, what, what was the, the purpose of the uh, the person the uh, who died? What were they trying to accomplish in the will? Where did they want their uh, estate to go? Uh, and applying that test to this fact pattern, uh, the judge gave direction to the executor uh, that the funds should be uh, should go to the now five-year-old uh, little girl uh, who was the granddaughter of the deceased. Uh, and because she's only five, uh, you might wonder, how is it that she's uh, <laughs> participating in all of this uh, at all? Yeah. Uh, and she's able to participate in it, and it's a good thing we have this institution too, uh, because of the efforts of the public guardian and trustee whose job it would be to help like minor children um, who otherwise might be left out or people who can't for other reasons protect their own interests. And so the public guardian and trustee actually participated on behalf of the little, the little girl, the five-year-old granddaughter, um, as part of this hearing, making submissions about what the judge ought to do um, and uh, arguing that, uh, you know, the uh, desire of the deceased uh, mother was to see her grandchildren uh, taken care of. Uh, and so the, the way to best respect uh, her uh, wishes with respect to her estate, which is what the uh, court should be trying to do, uh, would be to have the funds not be doubled up for the one surviving brother or indeed find that the whole gift just didn't work and it had to go to the charities that the uh, the best that can be done to do the least damage to the intention uh, of the deceased mother would be to see the uh, share of the estate that would otherwise have gone to the uh, murderer son yeah. uh, go to the little girl. And so 
What will happen then is that the public guardian and trustee will be responsible for managing uh, that money on behalf of the five-year-old, right? So mm-hmm. she's growing up and she needed help with you know, paying for school or other things. They would be able to do that. Uh, and then when she became uh, an adult, um, she would receive the funds uh, to deal with herself. So that's the outcome of the case. Uh, and the important principles in there include uh, you don't and cannot get some financial benefit for committing a criminal act, killing somebody. Yeah. Uh, and when you have a will like this, really what the court's trying to do is when a provision like this doesn't work anymore because you're not dead, but you don't get anything because you're the murderer. The court is trying to come to a solution and an interpretation of the will that would, as best possible, uh, respect the desire of the testator uh, at the uh, time the will was made. Uh, and it seemed clear here that the uh, the deceased mother, her interest was to uh, help her children yeah. and uh, failing that uh, her grandchildren and so that will be the uh, that'll be the outcome all right let's take our first break because i see icbc on the agenda coming up in our next case that'll be of interest michael mulligan with mulligan defense lawyers will be back right after this all right we're back on the air here at cfax 1070 michael mulligan from mulligan defense lawyers as we continue legally speaking up next on our agenda michael i'm seeing here a conviction for fraud against ICBC upheld on appeal and involves an interpreter helping people with driving tests. What happened? Yeah, you, it's a tangled web we weave, I tell you. Uh, and so the, the fact pattern here is it was actually an, uh, an interpreter who would interpret English to Arabic. Uh, and the interpreter was tasked with uh, interpreting the uh, knowledge test you need to pass in order to get your learner's license. Uh, the way it works is if you want to get your learner's license, you've got to first of all, you know, pass a test showing you know things like what does a green light mean? And what do you do when you see this octagonal red sign that says stop in the middle of it? Uh, things of this sort. Yes. Uh, and so the interpreter uh, was, it was described for rewards, so I presume that's money, helping his clients cheat on the knowledge test. Mm. And uh, the case describes it as uh, people who had uh, previously failed it on at least one occasion. Uh, And so uh, that's what this interpreter was doing. Uh, And uh, the uh, things that became interesting here included the fact that, and this was an appeal uh, of a conviction, the interpreter was charged with uh, fraud. Hmm. Uh, fraud under $5,000. And the way it was described in the uh, the charging document, the information, was that uh, he did uh, fraudul- by defraudulent means defraud the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia of property, a driver's license or driver's licenses. And so that brings to mind, well, what does fraud require? Hmm. Uh, and the act, the actus reus of fraud requires di- a dishonest act, mm-hmm. and then there must be an element of deprivation, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And deprivation can include prejudice to somebody or a risk of prejudice. Uh, and so one of the issues on appeal here was, well, what was ICBC really deprived of? Yes, this interpreter was uh, helping these people cheat, by giving them the answers to, you know, what a green light means and what a red light means and so forth. But what was ICBC really out? What was taken from? An increase Uh, in the risk of the drivers resulting in marginally higher payouts across the spectrum? That's exactly what the trial judge did. Ah. Uh, And that's exactly the analysis. The analysis was, well, look, these unsafe drivers who may not know what a stop sign means, 
are more likely uh, to get into an accident. And so that would be the risk or deprivation faced by ICBC. And so that's the basis upon which there was a conviction at trial. Interesting. And on appeal, the argument was, well, isn't this just too remote, right? This is just the learner's knowledge test. And, you know, the person has to drive with an instructor and they don't have a full license yet. Isn't that just too far out there to amount to any kind of a, a real deprivation? And so that's one of the core issues that the court was having to struggle with. Uh, and one of the interesting cases that it relied upon involved an effort to uh, manipulate a horse race, uh, presumably in Vancouver, from back in 2015. Hmm. And that case involved a, a horse trainer yeah. who tried to rig uh, a couple of horse races by injecting one horse with a performance-enhancing drug. <laughs> okay. Um, and so then the issue become, okay, well, you're charged with fraud. You, you've injected this horse with the performance-enhancing drug. But the issue was, and interestingly, the horse came in sixth, so it didn't work. <laughs> and so then the issue was, well, what was the deprivation? What, who, who lost out here? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You you tried to rig the race unsuccessfully, <laughs> interestingly. Right. So it wasn't like you uh, managed to get some money as a result of that. It, it didn't work. The horse <laughs> didn't run very fast. And so what oh. was the deprivation? And yeah. so back in 2015, the Court of Appeal in BC had to struggle with and uh, actually went to the Supreme Court of Canada, um, had to struggle with was what well, was that enough? Uh, and in 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada, in that horse racing, uh, unsuccessful horse racing case, uh, found that that was enough to amount to a that concept of a risk of deprivation, even if it didn't actually play out. And so with the ICBC cheating interpreter, the idea would be even if it turned out that, you know, these people, none of them actually had an accident, uh, you know, they learned what a stop sign and a red light meant, sometime before they were allowed to drive on their own. Uh, although I must say there's a pretty terrifying prospect that you're the uh, now the uh, driving instructor or the uh, other person yeah. who's driving around with some person who can't pass the knowledge test about what basic uh, things are required on the road, boy, oh boy, uh, that uh, even though uh, the no actual loss may eventually crystallize, it's enough uh, that there be that risk of deprivation. Uh, and as well, uh, the Court of Appeal had to deal with the idea that is the fact that the charge was specified to be what I indicated at the beginning, uh, defrauding the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia of property, a driver's license or driver's licenses, was it okay that really the basis for the conviction was what you indicated? Yeah. Well, there's an increased risk here. What, what you've charged this person with was depriving ICBC of a driver's license. Hmm. Uh, and so the court had to go on at some length uh, trying to figure out, you know, is, does that mean when you say that, is it, was it still okay for the judge to convict on the basis of the increased risk of an accident when you specified that the allegation is that you deprived, you defrauded ICBC of a driver's license? Huh. Uh, and again, the court found that that was okay. Uh, because uh, it didn't uh, prejudice the accused, that the uh, accused knew that really what the uh, basis of the allegation was that uh, he helped unqualified people uh, get their license and that that would make them uh, riskier uh, out on the road. Uh, and so even though there was uh, you know, many pages of uh, intellectual <laughs> head-scratching about 
whether when the Crown alleges that the, uh, the defrauding them amounted to defrauding them of a driver's license, which yeah. might suggest, what, the piece of plastic? Yeah, you yeah, know. Like, yeah, no, I, charge, I see the... you charge yeah. money? Huh. You know, what... what <laughs> What have, what have you lost there? You've charged somebody some money for a piece of plastic. Presumably it was a money-making operation. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, the uh, conviction was upheld, and, and so the takeaway there is that that concept of deprivation can include a, a risk uh, of uh, some loss, even if it's relatively remote. Uh, that's going to be uh, sufficient. Uh, and so the, uh, the dishonest ICBC translator um, uh, is uh, remains convicted uh, of uh, fraud under $5,000. There we go. One more story on the agenda for today, and it's an interesting one because, and, and I think that many non-lawyers would have no idea that this was the case, and I'm really glad that you uh, take the opportunity to continue reminding us of the importance of family law and how damaging those disputes can be. The importance of early resolution opportunities, I suspect, more and more important given especially the backlogs that we have in the justice system. You're sure right. I, I mean, you, you see these cases and so many of them in court. And the background of all of this uh, is that so many of the people who are struggling with family law issues, everything from, you know, access to children or getting child support or, you know, with somebody moving to Prince George with uh, the children or whatever it might be, uh, have no legal help. Uh, and that's a function of the fact uh, that uh, now back in 2002, we basically eliminated uh, the vast majority of legal aid assistance for poor people that needed help with family law cases. Uh, and so a very high percentage of people who wind up going to provincial court for help with these kinds of things uh, just have had no meaningful advice other than what you might get from uh, like duty counsel, a lawyer standing there trying to give quick advice to people in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what's been tried, and it was a pilot project in uh, Victoria, uh, was to uh, create some rules that when somebody wishes to go into provincial court on a family court uh, matter, the idea would be to have them first go through uh, a procedure at the what's called the Justice Access Centre. Uh, and that's actually attached to the courthouse in Victoria in part of the space where the land title office used to be. Uh, now that space is occupied by the Justice Access Center and the University of Victoria um, Law Center program that also helps people who are impoverished with legal uh, issues. Yes. And the idea is that before people can simply file an application to go in front of a judge to argue about whatever it might be, child support or uh, who's getting access to the child or whatever it might be, the idea would be to require people to first go through the Justice Access Center uh, and uh, get some uh, advice uh, from them, uh, and where appropriate, first of all, try a process of uh, dispute resolution, right, with a person facilitating that. And the idea being that uh, rather than having people come in often unrepresented uh, into court and sort of lay the problem before the feet of the a judge without, first of all, trying to work it out themselves or necessarily even know, you know, what is the legal test or what evidence do you need to bring or how much money might you be expected to pay or any of those basic things Yes. before allowing things to just go straight into court, try that route of sort of mediation and advice uh, to see whether things can be sorted out in that way. 
and this uh, pilot project in Victoria started back in 2019, May of 2019. And so there was some period of time before the uh, COVID uh, complications made things potentially more challenging. But the result of the report on this, which just came out, looks very positive. Uh, and some of the uh, results included uh, a reduction in new family law cases of 21%. This was an interesting stat. A reduction in the number of family law cases being adjourned by 71%. And that's likely coming from the fact that people would now know, for example, hey, if you're going to make this kind of an application, for example, this is what you need to bring. Uh, right? Make sure you've got your financial documents before you show up in court asking for something, right? And that yeah. would avoid like the unrepresented person showing up saying, hey, can't I get this from so-and-so? And they say, well, hold on, I don't have the financial statements or whatever it might be. So sort of preparing people. It reduced as a result of that, I think probably in part, uh, the number of court appearances on family matters by 53%. So like of the ones that didn't get resolved by that effort at mediation, uh, the number of appearances required to sort it out went down by more than half. Um, and there was also described as a sharp reduction in the number of cases that went for over 100 minutes in court. And what that's probably a, a function of, right, is if people know, here's what's going to be required of you, here's you know what the judge can and cannot do, that kind of thing. Yeah, the judge is going to have to spend less time uh, in a courtroom uh, trying to explain to people some of those basic um, things. And so um, all of this appears to be uh, essentially uh, a success, um, right? It's had the result of reducing court appearances, court time, uh, unnecessary adjournments, and it's produced a, a fairly high rate of success in terms of getting uh, resolutions by mediation. And so the process seems to be a success, which will probably result in it being spread to other parts of the province. The only asterisk I would put on all of this is that some of these problems are a function of the fact that we don't provide adequate legal representation for people with some of these very serious problems that have huge effects on their lives and their children and all of that. Uh, and so the reason why you've got endless adjournments and people not knowing what documents to bring and what to do is they don't have a lawyer. Yeah. And they still don't have a lawyer under this, uh, which is certainly subpar, right? If you've got somebody who may be, you know, in a, a vulnerable position, you can imagine a mother of young children trying to get child support or, right, a dad who's trying to, you know, see their kids, whatever it might be. You can wind up with people in a pretty vulnerable spot. Uh, and uh, this certainly looks like it's a, a meaningful improvement over just having them go raw into court with no advice. And many cases are getting resolved in this way. But what would, I think, help further in addition to sort of efforts like mediation and information and parenting courses and all the things that this brings with it are that we should increase our efforts yeah. to make sure that people get legal advice so that they're not being taken advantage of Absolutely. and uh, that may increase the number of things that resolve. So, That's all the time we have for today. Start. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michael. Appreciate it. As always, Legally Speaking.